0: Hello and welcome to Forest Fires. My name is John Clark. As I was preparing for this podcast, uh, it came to it came to my mind that yes, the concept behind this podcast is to address alcoholics and addicts and those of us who wish to take the recovery journey, but it goes beyond that. What I've learned in my recovery is that the 12 steps that are set forth in the various 12-step programs are rules, guidelines, if you will, suggestions for a way of life, changing the way that we live, admitting that we don't have power over other people, learning how to ask for help making amends to those people that we've harmed and letting go of the pain that other people have caused us, cleaning our own proverbial internal house daily, and making sure that when we put our head down on the pillow at night, that we're free of the resentments and harms that are commonplace in this world. And finally, the 12 steps teach us and suggest that for us to maintain any level of spiritual happiness, spiritual joy, and freedom, that we have to give it away. In other words, that we have to reach out and help other people. These don't sound like bad theories for life, whether you suffer from an addiction or not. Sadly, our world is one where we are taught to be very selfish, to hide that which we have and protect what we have gained over the years. What the 12-step program has taught me to do is to be grateful for what I have and to give away as much of it as I possibly can. And I'm not talking about monetary wealth. Don't get me wrong. This isn't a cult. What I'm suggesting is that you give away the hope that you have, the joy that you have, the pleasure and the happiness that you have gained. Certainly, there are people out there that are struggling financially, and yeah, they could use a hand, I am sure. There have been many a times in my own recovery when I could have used a hand, and the recovery community has been amazing. But what people really need out there is a kind word, the suggestion that they're not alone, the reminder that they are seen and that they are heard and that their concerns are very real. Our world teaches us to isolate, and sadly, as our world becomes more and more technologically advanced, we become more and more isolated from our communities. History has demonstrated to us that societies that have strong communities are stronger societies. Right now, we have virtual communities. We have communities that meet each other through computer screens. Human touch, human contact, a hug, a handshake, a slap on the back, and being able to hear each other's laughs and see each other's reactions. These are important things, and we need not take those for granted. So regardless of whether you are in the recovery community, or contemplating entering into the recovery community, or whether you're just trying to improve your life, do a little self-improvement, change things up, the 12 steps are not a bad way to go because at the end of the day, I had a sponsor tell me years ago that if I worked the 12 steps, the worst thing that could happen is that I would end up a better man. Yes, many of us in the recovery community, we work the 12 steps because we want to be free of addiction. We want to be free of the weight that is placed upon us by the disease. But I can tell you from my experience that I believe today that I'm a better man than I was five and a half to six years ago when I entered into this. On this episode of Forest Fires, we're going to be dealing with 10 common and deadly mistakes that many of us make in our early recovery. And not just in our early recovery, but in recovery in general. And again, as I was saying at the beginning of this, these are not just applicable to addicts and alcoholics, but to humans in general. But they hold a special place for us as addicts and alcoholics, those of us who are trying to walk this path, begin this journey to a better life. One of the first things that we'll talk about, number one, on the 10 common and deadly mistakes that people make in their early recovery is overcommitting. For many of us, before we got sober, we were very selfish, Before we entered into this recovery journey, we did what we wanted to do, when we wanted to do it, and how we wanted to do it. A general process or a general part of addiction is selfishness. And for a lot of us, addiction became a product of isolation. It became something that we did primarily in private. And because of that, we often missed family engagements. We missed family trips. We missed invitations out with our friends because we could do our real drinking in private way better than we could do in public. And we were afraid of the, the knowing stares that people would give us and the judgment that we felt that we might receive from other people. Because while a part of addiction is the selfishness, another part of the addiction is a lack of trust. And we began to distrust that we could go out in public and enjoy things the way that we could before without being judged by other people. But what oftentimes happens to us in early recovery is that we try to fix all of those relationships that we damaged, and we want to do so very quickly. So we begin to overcommit. We agree to more than we can handle in a day or more than we can handle in a week. We have our recovery schedule. We have our meetings that we need to attend. We have all the things that we need to, need to do to keep ourselves sane and safe and healthy. But then we start adding on to it additional events because we feel that we have to keep other people happy. And then beyond that, we start adding work situations into it because there's a mindset that we have in early recovery that we have to prove that we're better. So we have to work that much harder. The unfortunate reality though is once we start overcommitting we begin to have to start cutting things out of our day. And one of the first things to go and once we've overcommitted it are the daily activities that keep us healthy such as prayer, such as meditation, such as meetings. When we have this overwhelming desire to escape the overcommitments, it's a natural inclination for us to want to return back to the escapism of addiction, of alcoholism. We have to learn to take things slowly, especially at first. You have to remember that recovery is for life, not for a day. This isn't a sprint. It's not even a marathon because it's not a race. This is a daily exercise in healing. We have to give ourselves time to adjust to this new way of life. In time, if, if we take the time, if we are patient with ourselves, if we do this, in time we'll learn just how much we're able to cope with and how much we're not able to cope with. Thus, we can begin to find that balance. The second common and deadly mistake that we make in our early recovery is returning to our old haunts. It's often said in the recovery rooms that to get sober, to change your life, you have to change the people, places, and playgrounds of your past. But what many of us will do out of a sense of commitment is that we will return back to our old drinking and using friends. Perhaps we go back to them with no intention whatsoever of drinking or using, but we feel like If we don't return to them, they'll look at us and think that we're better than them. You have to look at your early recovery like a newborn child. Once a baby is born in that newborn status, there isn't a parent out there that thinks it's a good idea to take a newborn baby out into a public place within the first couple of days of their birth. The reason that is is because a newborn baby is susceptible to every possible infection that exists out there. Matter of fact, when you have a new child, a newborn baby, for the first year of their life, you're quite protective of who and what they are exposed to. Again, because they are susceptible not only to infection and disease, but also to injury. Your recovery is the exact same way. During your first year of recovery, particularly the first few months, you are highly susceptible to relapse. You are susceptible to the suggestions and to the leadings of old friends and acquaintances. And why do we return to our old friends and to those old drinking buddies that we used to have or those old using buddies? It can be out of a sense of loyalty. It can be out of a sense of kinship. It can be because when we leave treatment or when we enter into this recovery journey, we feel lonely and we don't have any other way to go. That's why it's so vitally important that you develop a recovery community early on, a community of people that can lift you up and support you. Be aware that being around drinking and drugs early in your recovery can make you feel very vulnerable You may start to feel left out as your friends will be on a different level to you while they're under the influence. When I feel left out, I want to be included. And I'll do whatever I have to do to feel included, even if that means violating my own moral code. Violating my own desires to stay sober just so that I can fit in and feel normal. So again... You must take it very cautiously when you return back to your old playgrounds, to your old playmates, and to those old places that led you to where you are today. Number three in the common and deadly mistakes that we make in our early recovery is thinking that we are cured. This is probably one of the most common mistakes. And at times, my disease likes to whisper in my ear and ask me if I was really ever an alcoholic to begin with. Maybe I just had a bad run. Maybe I just had a couple of bad weekends. But then I remember the damage of my past and realize I didn't have a couple of bad weekends. I had a couple of bad decades. And it was the product, at least in part, of alcohol and drugs The sad reality, as much as I would love to change it, the sad reality is that no one is ever cured from alcoholism or addiction. Having a sober and clean period does not mean that you can drink or use safely after a time. This is such a common disbelief or mistake that people make that sooner or later you'll get to a point where you can develop some control over it. I like to use the analogy of an allergy. Let's assume for the sake of argument that one day you wake up and you have developed an allergy to the sun. Now, prior to this, you loved going out in the sunshine. You worshipped the sun, enjoyed getting a good tan. But over a period of time, you began to realize that when you went out into the sun, you began to develop a rash. And in the beginning, it wasn't that bad. It was a little scratch, a little itch here or there. But over time, the allergy got so bad, the rash that developed on your skin, the irritation got so bad that you were now having to miss family events because the pain was so severe. So eventually after the pain gets so severe, you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you, yes, indeed, you have developed an allergy to the sun. And sadly, there's no cure for this allergy. However, The doctor tells you that there is a medication that exists. And that medication, if you take it every single day, will allow you to put this allergic reaction to the sun in a form of remission. You'll actually be able to go out and enjoy family activities again. Be able to go out and do the things that you did before without the pain and the injury that you had. And not knowing what else to do, you accept the doctor's suggestions and his recommendation, and you go get this medication, which, by the way, the medication is free. And you go home, and you take that medication, and you put it on your bedside table. And for the first couple of months, you are religious about taking it. You take it every single day. And sure enough, within the first couple of days, you can already begin to see that the rash and the pain is getting better. Within a week, it's almost completely gone. Within months, there's no evidence whatsoever that you ever had a rash before and you're able to go out and enjoy the sunshine. But after a period of time, you begin to get resentful that other people don't have to take this medication. Why should you? So you skip a day. And sure enough, on that day when you go out into the sunshine, you don't develop a rash. So in your own mind, you say, clearly, I have been cured of this disease. Clearly, I no longer have this addiction. So you stop taking the medicine entirely and you throw the medication away because you don't need it. But over a period of time, the rash returns, the pain returns. And this time, it comes on quicker and it comes on more severely. But this time, you are too embarrassed to go back to the doctor so you endure the pain for that much longer. Eventually, you return to the doctor and get your script filled again and start the recovery process again. That's, a lot, that's what a lot of us do in addiction. We go to treatment. We go to the 12-step rooms. We ask for help, and then we get better. The disaster of our addictive use begins to repair itself over a period of time, and then we begin to forget how bad that last hangover was, how bad that last dope sick was. I've had guys who literally convinced themselves that overdosing wasn't that bad. The truth of the matter is, it was that bad. There's a reason that the 12-step books say that the disease of alcoholism and addiction is cunning and baffling. Because within days of your last hangover, within days of your last pain, the disease will start whispering in your ear that it wasn't that bad. We have to always remember that it was that bad. There's an old mantra that was tossed around the rooms that I've heard many times that if you ever forget the pain of your last hangover, it's not your last hangover. I know good and well, I've got another drink in me. I know good and well, I've got another high in me and I know that I can get drunk and I know that I can get high and I know that it will be epic. But while I know that I've got another drunk and another high in me, what I don't know is if I have another recovery in me, and that I'm not willing to gamble with. Number four in the 10 mistakes we make in early recovery, having high expectations. Now, high expectations go to other people and to yourself. I see, I see so many guys leave treatment, and they have the expectation that their family will celebrate them when they return home, that everything will go back to normal, that the distrust that they had of them while they were in active addiction will go away. And when they get home, it's not that way at all. The distrust still exists. The relationship hasn't magically improved. And because of that, these expectations lead to a letdown. It's often been said that expectations are nothing more than unborn resentments. When I create expectations in other people, and it doesn't just have to be family members. It can be family members, friends, workplace associates, bosses. When I put expectations on other people, in other words, when I expect them to react in a certain way, I am setting myself up for disappointment. And for us as alcoholics and addicts, setting ourselves up for a resentment is a surefire way. It is a certain recipe for relapse. But we also have to be careful, not just with the expectations that we set on other people, but the expectations that we set on ourselves. You cannot treat recovery like a diet. Because a diet says that you're going to cut out carbs, or you're going to cut out chocolate, or you're going to cut out sugar. And for many of us, the first time that we sneak a piece of bread or sneak a piece of candy, well, the diet's completely over. As I said earlier, I don't think I have another relapse. I know I have a relapse in me. I don't think I have another recovery in me. When I set my expectations for perfection, I am setting myself up for failure. The goal cannot be to be perfectly sober because you will never be. Now, that doesn't mean that it's okay to sneak a drink or a drug every once in a while. Sober is more than the absence of alcohol and drugs. It's the changing of one's life. It's the improvement. You're not going to do this process perfectly. That's why the 12-step programs say that we are programs of progress, not perfection. Because perfection is a delusion that will kill you. Most people out there when they think about alcoholics and addicts, they probably have a vision of what those folks look like in their head. But alcoholics and addicts look just like me. They look just like you. They look like moms. They look like dads. They look like lawyers and doctors. They don't necessarily have to look like the town drunk. They don't have to look like the characters that are portrayed on television. We have to stop having these expectations of perfection because what the few people out there, what the people out there that think we look a certain way don't realize is that the vast majority of alcoholics and addicts that I've met are perfectionists. But the problem with perfectionism is that perfection is the enemy of good. If we're constantly striving to be perfect, we fail to be able to acknowledge our improvement, the good that we have gained. So again, the goal can't be to be perfectly sober or to work this program perfectly, but to make progress, to be better. You're never going to be perfect, but the question is, is are you better today than you were yesterday? Number five on the 10 mistakes that people make in early recovery is embarking on new relationships. This is a dangerous one. I'll just be 100% honest with you. I have broken this rule more times than I wish to admit and it's not really a rule it's a suggestion but embarking on new relationships there are a lot of feelings that are involved in that and because of that embarking on a new relationship in early recovery is a mistake in some cases Again, there is no one-size-fits-all recovery, and these suggestions are not applicable to every single person that's out there because I'm positive somebody that's listening to this is going to tell me that they got into a relationship within the first year, and it worked out just fine. Congratulations to you. But I have to look at the vast quantity of alcoholics and addicts out there, and I have seen that relationships in early recovery can be detrimental. One of the reasons that is, is because early recovery is a time for getting to know yourself and making the relevant changes to ensure that you don't go back to drinking and or using. A new relationship can be very distracting in terms of where you place your time and your effort. When I get into a relationship, I like to throw myself entirely into that relationship. And in some ways, I make my partner my new God for a little while. And I did this for a lot of years. I worshipped that person. I became addicted to that person. And they took the place of my drug. Now, if that sounds insane, it is. But it's what I did. It's what codependency is. Because I began to hang my happiness, my joy, my pleasure, my satisfaction on another person. And to be honest with you, it was much easier trying to make someone else happy than it was trying to make me happy. Early recovery is about getting to know yourself, learning how to be comfortable in your own skin. If you'll take the time in early recovery to be comfortable with and within yourself, you'll have plenty of time to embark upon relationships once you're on solid ground. Number six in the common mistakes that we made are expecting expecting our loved ones and friends to change. Now, again, this goes into the expectations that we talked about earlier. But oftentimes we will come out of a treatment facility or in our early stages of recovery from the 12-step meetings. And we'll walk into our family situations and expect them to Model their behavior such that it would be helpful to us. Or perhaps your significant other, a family member, a loved one, is someone that you used with. And just because you're getting better, you expect them to get better. Remember, no one could have influenced you coming into recovery until you were well and truly ready. If you are in a relationship with someone that is still drinking or using heavily, you'll need to decide whether it's safe for your recovery to continue in that relationship. Or if, for the time being, you may need to put some distance between the two of you. There are no easy answers when you love someone who is suffering from an addiction. In the last podcast, I think I said that I was called a double winner because I was both an alcoholic and someone who had... Been in a relationship and loved an alcoholic. It's a painful situation. But what I had to remember is that if I lost myself in someone else, I was lost. And all of those things that depended upon me would be lost as well. It's important to keep your sobriety safe first and foremost. Otherwise, you'll not be of any help to those that you love and care for. Children, family members, co-workers, whatever it may be. And it's always important to remember the mantra that you'll hear in 12-step rooms. Anything you put ahead of your recovery, you will lose. It's not you might lose. It's not possible you'll lose it. You will lose it. It will disappear as quickly as you can imagine. Number seven. Number seven, thinking you can do it alone. This is so common in the 12-step rooms. It's so common in the recovery communities. When I hear people tell their relapse stories, I hear them talk about how they thought they could do this on their own. That, yes, the suggestions of 12-step communities were good. The suggestions of sponsors were good, but they were different. They didn't need all of this. They could do it by themselves. Addiction relies on the individual trying to be self-sufficient. Lying, cheating, and sometimes even stealing to fund an addiction. Doing all of those things takes a lot of self-reliance. Addiction often very much isolates us from others and even from reality. When we're isolated from others and from reality, we can begin to think that asking for help becomes a sign of weakness. This is also a byproduct of the toxic masculinity culture toxic masculinity is a plague upon the male community because we believe that asking for help is a sign of weakness and there is nothing further from the truth the bravest boldest strongest men i have ever met have been willing to say they didn't have all the answers and ask for help Pretending that you have it all figured out on your own even while you are dying isn't a sign of strength. It's a sign of weakness and ignorance. Others' input and help is valuable and necessary to prevent us from returning to our old self-sufficient ways. To build new relationships, we have to go out and start trusting other people. We have to open the door to new possibilities. We have to be willing to take suggestions from other people and, take the, and begin to change the mindset that your way is the only way. Because if you're honest with yourself, your way has led you to the worst parts of your life. When you are lost and finally start asking for help, you don't challenge the directions that you're given. You take those recommendations, you take those suggestions, and you do whatever it takes to stop being lost. It's important in our early recovery, or in recovery in general, or even for you folks that may be listening to this that are not in recovery, It's important to stay reachable, stay teachable, and to stay humble. Because staying reachable means that we haven't put ourselves above anybody. Staying teachable means that we have kept our ego in check and that we are capable of learning something new every single day. And the humility aspect of it, well, that's just a key to a good life in general. In general. None of us are superior to anyone else. And acknowledging that and understanding that in our early recovery can not only help us gain a better grasp on early recovery, but can help us to gain a better grasp on life in general. Number eight, feeling ashamed to be struggling. I have watched so many people who've gone through early recovery and who have refused to ask for help who have refused to admit that even though they're going to the meetings, even though they're meeting with a sponsor, even though they're trying to work the steps, they're still struggling. But they don't want to talk about it because a guy that they entered into treatment with has got the exact same number of days in recovery, and they're doing so much better. All the consequences of their actions seem to have improved, but this other person's consequences haven't. Comparison is the enemy of success. We cannot compare our recovery journey to someone else's. You cannot feel ashamed to be struggling. We have to be humble enough and open enough to continue asking for help, even when things are supposed to be getting better. Your addiction led to its final resting place on its own timeline. It was unique in and of itself. Yes, addicts and alcoholics believe that they are terminally unique. They believe that they are so unique that they can't get help. But the truth of the matter is, is the people and places and things in your story are yours and yours alone. Mine and your pain of addiction may be relatable, but the actual events in your story are yours. Because of that, your recovery journey will also be yours. It will be unique. One of the dangers in recovery is that I can tell you all day long how happy, joyous, and free I am today as a result of my recovery. And I can tell you that if you'll stop drinking and stop drugging, your life will get better. And I can tell you exactly what my life looks like. But to anyone that is out there listening, to anyone that is tuning into this, I have no idea what your life is going to look like when you put the drugs or the drink down. All that I can tell you is that it'll probably be better. Because there are millions of people out there who have given me the evidence to suggest that it will. There is no certainty. There is no guarantee. But statistically speaking... You know exactly what's going to happen if you keep doing what you were doing. That's a certainty. You've got to give the uncertainty a little bit of faith. You have to give this new life a little bit of hope. You have to be willing to stick your big toe in the door just enough to maybe begin to feel the light. You can't do this all on your own. And... You have to put down the shame that comes with the struggle. Because the struggle is a part of the recovery journey. And for me, the things that I've struggled with have made me stronger in my own personal recovery. But again, something I've said in multiple podcasts, we're only as sick as the secrets that we keep. And if I hide my struggles, those struggles will translate into me picking back up the drug or the drink eventually. Because no one wants to struggle indefinitely. But when I share my struggles with other people, they can help carry some of that weight. They can help carry or lift some of that burden off of my shoulders. And they can help guide me from my struggle to my success. Number nine. Expecting others to forgive and to trust us immediately. This rolls back to the expectations mistake that we made. Many of us come into the recovery communities and we are covered in shame and guilt for the things that we've done. Sadly, dishonesty, distrust, these are all byproducts of active addiction. Many of us have done things that we would have never done sober. And we've done things that we don't even want to talk about. And in the rooms, you'll hear of the ninth step promises. The ninth step promises that tell you that if you'll work these steps, if you'll live this life, you'll be amazed before you're halfway through. And I can tell you from personal experience, it's true. But it's almost six years sober, there are still people out there that I hurt that will never forgive me. There are people out there that don't truly believe that I'm sober. They're waiting on the next shoe to drop just so that they can say, see, I told you, he was never really sober to begin with. And that's on them, not on me. In the... When we do our ninth step, when we actually start going through and making amends to other people, it's important to remember that we make amends not for the other person. When we make amends, we're not not seeking to gain forgiveness. The ninth step, the amends, is about us taking ownership of the damage that we caused. Remember the basis of the serenity Prayer. Accept the things you cannot change and change the things that you can. I cannot change nor control what anybody else does, including I can't control whether they forgive me. Now, my addictive mind wants me to manipulate people and make them forgive me. But when I do that, I've just created a bigger problem. But what I do have control over is me changing my life, not just saying that I'm sorry, but actually doing something about it. I have control over my behavior, I have control over my actions, but I have no control over whether somebody else forgives me or gains trust in me. For most of us, our family members and loved ones don't want to hear we're sorry anymore. Because we've used the phrase disposably over the years. What most of them don't realize is that every time that we said we were sorry, we were. But we weren't able to keep the promise to them of change. Remember that an apology without changed behavior is nothing more than manipulation. And if you claim to love those people in your life, manipulating them isn't just selfish, it's cruel. Don't expect others to forgive you or to trust you immediately. Now, in my personal experience and in my life, I have been forgiven by people that never should have. I have received blessings and gifts from people that I do not deserve. I should not have as strong a relationship with my children as I have. And for it, I am grateful because I assure you, I don't deserve it. I live a life of gratitude now. And we cannot put our expectations on other people to expect them to forgive us or to trust trust us before we've given them the evidence to allow them to do so. The final mistake that we make, number 10, thinking that the hard work is done. Now that you've managed to stop drinking and are using, you may be thinking that the hard work is behind you. But remember, the recovery journey is not simply about the absence of drugs and alcohol, but rather it's about changing our lives so that we don't have to include drugs and alcohol in it. I had to understand why I drank before I could truly stop drinking. I thought I drank because it was fun or because it was a way to deal with stress. What I began to realize over a period of time was that I drank because I had a lot of internal shame, a lot of internal pain, the inability to accept myself, and certainly the inability to like myself. It's common place in early recovery for people to think that because they put the drink and the drug down after a period of time that the hard work is done they no longer need to go to meetings they no longer need to call a sponsor they no longer need to work the steps when you do this complacency begins to creep in as you begin to feel comfortable stopping the alcohol and the drugs is the easy part of the recovery journey the hard part is staying stopped you have to remain vigilant about this It's been said more times than I can count that the disease of alcoholism and addiction is cunning and baffling. I've oftentimes heard it said that while you're in the 12-step meetings or while you're in treatment, your disease is in the parking lot doing push-ups because it's going to look for a situation where you've become complacent, where you've become lazy in your recovery, and that's the place where it's going to strike you. I have seen individuals that had 20 plus years of sobriety who let down their guard for one weekend, for one week trip, and find themselves giving away 20 some odd years of recovery and being back in the throes of their addiction. We cannot ever believe that the hard work of recovery is done. Now don't get me wrong. There's a lot of hard work that's associated with recovery, but it is not grueling work. It is not work that doesn't have a benefit. No, we're not toiling in a field, swinging a hammer someplace. The mental and emotional part of the recovery journey can be hard, though. Admitting that we've hurt people, admitting that we're not as strong as we may have thought that we were, and admitting that we're not as perfect as we want to be. These are all hard things. But in my experience, once we put, the, put down the facades, the delusions, these concepts of control that we have, once we put those things down, the blessings that are in front of us can be enormous. While a, a list of mistakes is never all-inclusive, because I promise you I have made mistakes in my recovery that aren't in my top 10. And anyone that is out there listening to this has probably made mistakes that are not on this list as well. But these are things that we can be attentive to, be cautious of, and be aware of. So as this week continues, as you move on with your recovery experience, my challenge to you is to stay self-aware. When you do your tenth step inventory every evening, ask yourself, are there parts of your recovery that need to be worked on? Are there elements of your recovery toolbox, if you will, that need to be sharpened? If there are, be honest enough with yourself to begin sharpening them. And in a lot of cases, it's important to ask for help. Because without help, I fail to realize and see how dull some of my tools have become. And for me, when my tools become dull, when my weapons against this disease run out of ammunition, my demise is quickly coming. Have faith in yourself. Put a little hope in the community. Do good by other people and share as much hope as you possibly can. Thank you for tuning in.